0: You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get
1: ready to rumble!
0: Wherever you are, however, you're listening, it's America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm George Cedarquist, joined this week by Oliver Camacho and Weston Williams. All right, here we go. In our new segment, Swings and Misses. You look at the best and worst decisions from opera land, starting with the home runs and strikeouts of Anthony Freud's tenure at Lyric Opera of Chicago. And then he was in fantasy football enemy territory. But did he enjoy Opera Philadelphia's Festival (laughs) O23? Oliver tells all in Monday Evening Quarterback. Plus, in the two-minute drill, how would you look? If you were naked on stage and 4.9 billion years old. Mm. (laughs) Yikes. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast, Spotify, click follow Apple podcast, hit the plus sign, send us a voice memo, email us your hot takes, mailbag at operaboxscore.com. You can even just record your thoughts using the, you got something to say page on our brand new website, by the way, operaboxscore.com. Hey, look, however you contribute. You're going to get the OBS Beer Coaster, an OBS Lapelpin, and the all-new number one OBS Fan Foam Finger, just for sharing your own hot take.
1: You really confuse anyone at the sports events uh, with that one. This
0: <laughs> is so much good merch, Oliver.
1: Uh,
2: Yeah, it is good merch. Actually, I just came from a, a conference where there was all sorts of uh, branded merch. Is that merch, a drink?
1: I think that would be a drink. Uh,
2: branded conference <laughs> from <laughs> – uh various uh radio stations and uh public media companies and one of the uh branded items was a cozy for your earbuds. Oh my goodness.
0: Uh, oh. So a
2: brand a branded cozy for your earbud case. Now I think they were a little bit prejudiced because I think it will only fit uh i uh, iPods oh, yeah, or yeah, 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 yeah. iPod earbuds because mine are beats and mine are very wide and so I was trying to slip this it's like a like a condom you put on top of your... <laughs> Safety uh, first is so, so important yeah.
0: <laughs> when you're listening exactly. to opera.
2: But mine's mine's too thick.
0: <laughs> Wes, did any merch... That you've had in your life recently?
1: No, I I exclusively use big chunky headphones that are uh, that I get weird looks for uh, on the subway. I have like you know (laughs) my my Sennheisers on. You know I'm going down the red line and I have like a a twelve foot long wire wrapped around me. And there's always comical situations where I get stuck in the doors and then I you know get pulled off the thing. And it's a it's a whole thing going down to the lyric to see a show is hard, which is why I haven't made it to uh, Flying Dutchman yet.
0: we're going to get there in a second a little bit of sports talk megan Rapinoe, who's 38 just played her rapino oh my goodness
1: Rapineau. So,
0: yeah, i got <laughs> we got we got to take that that is rapino
1: not how you pronounce it gonna, george we're going to
0: have we're going to have that cannot go out we're going to have to start that again we'll talk a little bit of sports there's so much happening in the fall and sports but um megan Rapinoe. rapino oh my goodness <laughs> oh goodness
1: so, i'm leaving it in george i'm leaving both of them in <laughs>
0: Megan Rapinoe is 38 years old, the iconic player for the U.S. women's national team, just played her final game over the weekend, actually here at Soldier Field against South Africa, 203 international appearances, two World Cups winning teams, by the way, one summer Olympics team that won gold. And she says this, quote, I think, yeah, by a mile, what we've done off of the field, I think that's made such a lasting impact. We've been a big part of pushing, talking about whether it's gay rights, racial justice, trans rights, and everything about every conversation sports, in particular women's sports. What I love about this is that she really has put everything outside of soccer first. Would this art form not be incredible if every opera singer was like, you know what? Yeah, I go out there and I sing and I sing well, but honestly, it's what I do off this stage is what is going to have a lasting impact in people's lives. That is my challenge to the artists in this art form. Let's talk some opera. Tops and bottoms, cheers and boos. Sometimes you win, sometimes
1: you lose. It's time for Swings and Misses. (laughs) That's right, folks. It's a brand new segment. Thank you so much, Norm, for your tireless work. He's with with me here in this closet, completely silent (laughs) at all times until he needs to say one of these intros, and he nails it every time. Swings and misses. We have inaugurated this segment to look into the tenure of Anthony Freud, who was the uh, 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 general director of Lyric Opera of Chicago, starting on the very first day of the 2011 season, 2011-2012 um, uh, season, I should say, and just announcing his uh, retirement uh, like a week ago, I believe, right. he's going back to Britain at the end of the season. Shortening his contract, which is something that doesn't happen that often. Yes, yes. that's true. Well, I mean, it doesn't happen that often, except apparently this year, because everyone's doing it. All yeah. the cool kids <laughs> we are uh, leaving general directorships <laughs> at opera companies. Um, so I thought we might uh, assess Anthony Freud's tenure, the way we might assess an NFL coach, you know? Well, what are his championships, win-loss records, hires, new initiatives? What? What? How do we decide if Anthony Freud is the Bear Bryant of opera? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That is the question we are setting out to answer here today on Opera Box Score with some hits and, you know, no coaches without a few misses. So let's start with George. What are some hits in your mind from uh, Freud's tenure?
0: I want to start. I want to look at the statistics, first of all, and then I'm going to throw it at Oliver for some of the hits and misses, and then I'll, I'll, I'll go at the end. So purely just starting at the stats. So there's been four general directors of Lyric since the company was founded in the 50s. Right. And the the tenures of those four, Fox, Kranich, Mason, and Freud, have basically all been the same, anywhere between like 13 to 15 or 16 years. In fact, Anthony Freud has spent more time at Lyric Opera Chicago than he did at Houston, where he came mm. from, or even from Welsh National Opera, where he was before then. I want to add this, though. In in 2021, and this is according to Crane's Business Magazine, 2021, Anthony Freud made just over $736,000. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was the uh, 16th highest paid in the not-for-profit sector in Chicago. Hmm. He was not only the highest paid administrator of a performing arts company he was the only administrator of an of a performing arts company in the top 25 in this city so read into the numbers you know what you will about that but uh it it shows you that this is like a really important job right i mean peter Gelb with the met the, the met is the nation's um Wealthiest or has the biggest budget of any performing arts organization in the country. Clearly, the city of Chicago thinks that Lyric is equally important.
1: Yeah, exactly. Lyric has always had the reputation of being the other opera company after the Met, whether or not it necessarily uh, measures up to that standard. Um, and I, I think it's really interesting for me because uh, I am still a relatively new transplant to Chicago. I came in 2016. Um, I was just entering college when uh, Anthony Freud took over at Lyric Opera of Chicago. So I have known Jeez. nothing else, unlike my two wizened uh, compatriots here with me on the podcast. Are Oliver
0: and I really that old? Come on, <laughs> Oliver, are you going to let that stand?
1: Get uh, this guy out of here. <laughs>
0: So I really I,
1: I would really like to know, from from the perspective of someone who has seen a little bit of a previous administration, how different really was he? What, what, what did he do differently compared to uh, previous uh, administrations? Well, I don't know exactly
2: how to answer that question, but I'll try to answer it the way I was uh, I would try to address this topic in the way I had intended to without <laughs> your question setting me up to fail.
1: <laughs> I mean, you, you know
2: me, Oliver, and it's, uh, just sway to Oliver. hell with the script. Read, read our notes here, buddy. Read our notes. <laughs> so I'll say that, and it's not clear how much of this is music director and how much of this is general director and how much of this is actually Renee Fleming. Right. Who, you know, is the whatever um, artist in residence or curator oh, or creative consultant, or I forget what her title is. Um, but they started taking some swings uh, such as programming programming uh, The opera Weinberg's The Passenger, Mm -hmm. uh, which is a horrifying story about the Holocaust. And then some uh, DEI forward shows that this is before we even started using that term in post-pandemic, such as An American Dream, which is about the Japanese internment. Mm -hmm. Uh, That was was staged in 2018. They did Fellow Travelers, Mm. the Lavender Scare Opera. Charlie Parker's Yardbird. Uh, then there was that commission by Jimmy Lopez Bellido, Belcanto, based on the Ann Patchett novel. Uh, so these are some things that definitely are trying to find new audiences and trying to be inclusive of the many races that are represented in Chicago. So I thought that was really, those were great swings. Whether or not the productions themselves, the performances themselves were very good is one question, but I think I'm happy to go see. Those types of works, which I have to say, of all the all those that I mentioned, were all written in this new 21st century American opera approach, which is to be lyrical, to be tonal, to not, you know, I call it Carlisle
1: Floyd (laughs) 2.0.
2: Yes, to not be so academic and writing for other composers, actually making the work accessible. Uh, let's remember that Dead Man Walking was programmed at Lyric Opera Chicago in 2019. And right. yes, that opera has been around for a while. Mm-hmm. But uh, as everybody knows, it's just making its Met debut, uh, well, I guess tomorrow as of this recording.
0: Right.
2: Um, so those, I think, were, were good things. I'll also say, and once again, I'm not sure if this was, um, you know, artistic director choices or Anthony Freud choices, but we got Benjamin Bernheim. Back in 20, what was it 2017 when he sang Faust with none other than Eileen Perez? We got Christina Gerke's Elektra in 2012. That was a season opener, and that mm, was an mm, amazing mm, performance. Bob. Yeah. And we also got um, Sandra Rodbanowski's Three Queens. We didn't get each of the operas like she performed them at the Met, but we got the highlights. We got the, the best of Sandra <laughs> Radbanovsky concert. And she got to, you know, be really feel like a star. And, you know, uh, lyric opera is sort of her hometown company. So I'm thrilled that she got to, you know, sing three really important parts of those three major operas in her repertoire as one concert. So audiences who can't travel to Europe or to wherever to hear her sing those full operas, got a chance to hear, you know, those final scenes. I thought that was a really nice opportunity. And they made a recording of it um some swings that i'm not sure if they were misses or if they were hits foul balls Uh, yeah Mm -hmm. the collaboration with second city uh i think they did two of them one based on Wagner and one just like welcome to the opera and like they did had great marketing for it um we haven't seen that collaboration in a couple years but chicago is known for its uh improv and for its for its comedy we're a comedy town
0: and uh, why not why
2: not try to tap into that comedy audience i doubt any new fan of uh opera came from the comedy circuit they can't afford it but maybe (laughs) we did cross-pollinate with the comedy scene and maybe some lyric opera audiences you know started going to whatever zanies you know I don't know if that's the case. But I mean I, I understand <laughs> I understand the intention there. It was a swing. Uh and I appreciate it. Yeah. Some miss some misses for me. Uh for sure, the starting of music theater taking up a whole slot in our season. And now, you know, as our seasons get smaller, that music theater piece really does feel like an intruder to me. <laughs> uh I know a lot of people loved um the Jesus Christ Superstar, is that the one? The big rock opera. It
0: was amazing. Yes, it's incredible. Yeah. So yeah.
2: I know that a lot of people thought that was a great show. I wanted to have earplugs. And I go to everything. And <laughs> yeah, like, baby, because
0: we wanted it hard right. and loud. We got hard and loud. Yeah. <laughs> Look. And I'll say the
2: performances were great. Uh I thought it was uh, you know, very engaging and like I was but I just feel like why is this here? Why can't it be somewhere else? Like that you I mean, this is a show that doesn't need opera audiences to attend it. It will do fine on Chicago's Broadway scene, you know? And the thing that I'm really disappointed in that seems to continue to be a part of their strategy is uh, programming early Verdi operas. We've already had Louisa Miller. We had last year's season opener, which was Ernani. Uh, the one that happened during COVID was Attila. Um, I'm not sure if audiences are hankering for this. And in this sort of tenuous time for opera, Uh, Who is the audience for this? Is it welcoming new people to the opera or is it only, you know, um, something for the diehards, for the real aficionados and let's be
1: honest, there's not that many of those either. I I think, I think part of it was, you know, uh, Enrique Mazzola. uh, I feel like it's something he's very passionate about. Mm -hmm. And I, I do get like, you know, when you hire, you know, a new principal uh, conductor, you really do, uh, or artistic director, you do want them to be doing things they're passionate about. I think that is in, in, very important. It's not quite appealing to the opera diehards who are like, oh, we, we like the middle and late period Verity. Who really cares about the early Verity? It's right. not really appealing to the yeah. new people <laughs> who want to hear new weird stuff. It, it was, you know, it, it's a strange move. And I, I think there's a lot of... Uh, little moves like that i think across his tenure that i'm like are you are you sure about that like never anything like egregiously like wrong per se at least from my perspective but there were a lot of little little things that you just kind of make you go Question mark? <laughs> no. yeah. um,
0: look, I, look. I mean, you're, you're gonna you're gonna swing at some bad balls, and that's what that's what we're calling misses, right? And right. Our metric swings are when you connect and when you make things happen. We look at lyric and limited yardbird fellow travelers. Second city, he he, he swang at a, a ball and he missed, right? And and that hasn't really played out. I would say the musicals actually was very successful. I think that when you're, you're getting musical theater scores played by a full orchestra. Whether that's West Side Story, Candide, uh, Jesus Christ Superstar, that is thrilling. That is exciting, and you can't just go anywhere to see that. And the lyric really filled a niche by doing that.
1: Yeah, I, I do think there's something to be said for that. Like you know, I, I you will not hear say West Side Story with a full orchestra anywhere any anymore. Even if you hear West Side Story. Um, uh, however, I do think that it wasn't so much an artistic decision because here's the timeline, right? Anthony Freud starts his tenure in October of 2011. Mm -hmm. During that 11, 12 season, um, they put on showboat, uh, and it breaks the record for individual ticket sales. And I think that the lyric uh, under Freud saw dollar signs and within a couple of seasons, they were like, this is, we're going to have one of these every single, right? Uh, every single year. And I think that's sort of the objection that people have. Like if it was more of a once in a while kind of thing. Um, and then I think, uh, you know, last season we technically had two now, now this is a miss. And I, I will say I'm kind of uh, stealing from Ashley's notes here. Cause again, I wasn't here yet in Chicago, but there, there, there has been a perceived, quote-unquote, general artistic decline. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which, like, in, speaking as someone who wasn't there, like, I don't know how how legit that is. I don't know what people are actually complaining about. Often when people complain about this sort of thing, it's generally old man yelling at cloud type of complaints. <laughs> but, you know, I don't know. Is there anything to it, George? What do you think?
0: Well, look, okay, so... With all due respect to Ashley, who's not here to defend herself, it's like, what's the metric for <laughs> general artistic decline or, right. get, or GAD, as we like to say, in the business? I, you know, Ashley makes the point the decline started in the, the Bill Mason era, safe productions, uh, the controversial choice of dropping from eight operas to six as part right, of the season, right, yeah. adding musicals. I, I, I get all that. Ultimately, if you're assessing, say, an NFL coach, it comes down to... To championships, right? Ditka would not be the godlike coach she is today if the 85 Bears had not won the Super Bowl. Here's, here's the fact is when you look at the International Opera Awards, which started in 2013, Lyric has some nominations in a variety of categories starting in 2016 and 2018, nominated for Best Company in Orchestra, 2019 finalist for Best Chorus. The thing that happened is that Anthony Freud and Lyric were a victim of the world around themselves. They have no pandemic wins, right? right. The Ring Cycle, the final installment of the Ring Cycle, to Demerong is supposed to open in 2020, followed by three cycles, and it doesn't happen. And mm. does Lyric necessarily pivot in a smart way? I don't know if you can look at any digital output that had a lot of impact. Uh, you know, We can look at, say proximity um, factor in which Ashley counts as as swings and connecting. So those are successes. But ultimately, it feels like this opera company did not pivot. Uh, I'm not going to say smartly enough, but they didn't pivot quickly enough and with enough right. intention and payoff after the pandemic.
1: Yeah, I, I think that Anthony Freud's tenure has been very much a traditional sort of A-list opera company sort of tenure. Uh, with all the good and bad that entails, right? They're they're not you know a smaller house that can do different things that is used to dealing with large financial disasters. You know, um, they they did start programming a lot of good stuff. You know, after you know uh, uh, after you know twenty twenty, uh, like bringing fire shut up in my bones to Chicago, obviously huge win, uh, and, and things like that. Like they've they've done a lot of these sort of like. You know what you would kind of expect any house to do, and again, a lot of the newer operas, a little slightly stranger operas they were doing before, like say the Met was, but they were really only ahead of the Met. <laughs> you know what I mean? And uh, I, I don't know. I feel like in general, I, I think I would characterize his tenure as good. You know, like it doesn't enthuse me in retrospect. And here's the problem.
0: He was a victim of circumstance, right? Right. So like he has, a, he has a, a good tenure. Again, he's being paid three quarters of a million dollars. You can discuss if that's on point or not. He's having a good tenure. But in the light of the pandemic, how to plow through that and recover from that, is good going to be enough? I'm not yep. sure. I'm not sure if it is. And then, of course, you look at the lack of, of actual wins at International Opera Awards. Um since 2019. I don't think there's been an I don't think there's been a nomination. So
2: I don't really care about international opera where it's that's like a fake thing. So. It's it's not a <laughs> yeah. it's not a
0: fake thing. It's not a fake thing because it puts this company on a world map. And I think that's what the company had under Mason was that mm. this was America's second city and America's second opera company on an on a global stage. And I, I don't know if that's the case. Mm. Right now, interesting. Here's here's what I do want to know, and I know we gotta we gotta wrap it up is I'd love to know who's next. Who yeah, replaces me too. how do you make that choice to replace Anthony Freud? Who is it? Um, and, and what company are they coming from? Are they coming from an American opera company? Are they American? It doesn't bother me one way or the other. That's not meant to be a, a slight at all. God knows I'm English.
1: I would love to see a big swing, you know? Let's uh let's get that swing, let's connect it. Uh get Oliver Camacho in there. I mean, it would be great to see a woman lead that company
2: or Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Company, but I think you take your bigger swings with uh, music directors, and they had their chance to do that, and they didn't. Mm. Uh, That, to me, feels like a big question mark, whether or not Enrique Mazzola is going to be good Mm -hmm. for Lyric. Mm. Um, I'll say that, like, Anthony Freud, in my experience with him, is a very good spokesperson for opera and a good spokesperson for the company. Yes. And uh, he's very dignified. And... You know, he had COVID and not he had COVID, maybe he did have COVID, but you know, COVID was part of <laughs> was part of his tenure. And a lot of uh, you know, companies had to react to, you know, the new landscape after the um social uprising and mm-hmm. COVID primers, all those things. And I mm-hmm. think they did okay. I think uh-huh. some of the programming we've seen since the pandemic is a little bit like a reaction, but that's right. good. At least he's showing that he cares and he's trying to figure out uh what what to do um right now it doesn't feel like the company has a lot of focus and i think what's making it even harder for chicago audiences to understand what his tenure meant is that uh one of the main journalists here in chicago really has had a bone to pick with anthony freud and only (laughs) says mean things even when giving praise to a performance at lyric always finds a way to put in a dig at Anthony Floyd.
0: <laughs> uh, so I think
2: a lot of people's, yeah, a lot of people are influenced by that yeah. uh, when they read, because it's like, the, I mean, that outlet is one of the only places where you regularly see reviews mm-hmm.
0: of things in Chicago. Mm-hmm. So Yeah. Yeah. Let us know what you're thinking, especially if you have thoughts on who could be the next general director at Lyric Opera Chicago. We want to hear from you. Mailbag at OperaBoxScore.com. Sports talk before we get into Monday evening quarterback fantasy football happening. Fast and Furious upper box score currently at one and one. The last NFL games being played this evening as we tape the show. It looks like Tobias and I are going to lose this one, go one and two. A lot of football left to play. Hopes are still high.
1: Tobias dragging us down from the grave.
0: Yet again. (laughs)
2: Uh, We are, you know, really outside of the main Grand Slam season of tennis, and there'll be a couple more Masters events before the end of the calendar year. But uh, the current result that we're talking about right now in the tennis world is the Labor Cup, which is a new-ish event that was added to the official ATP tour uh, that was founded by Roger Federer, and it's in its sixth season. And it pits European players against not European players. They, <laughs> oh, they nice. call them they call the not European the, players the colonialism cup. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they call them they call them Team World. Uh which is like sort of like, you know, when you think about wine like there's old world <laughs> and there's new world wines, you know. The new
0: world uh, order. Yeah. So like um, like- I have to
2: say, you know, th- this year the team world uh definitively uh and comprehensively beat the old world 13 to two was the <laughs> final score and that's like a round robin like sort of like you know some double some singles. so uh it was t- team europe sort of is uh struggling right now So whole time sorry europe pass or fail here's monday evening quarterback it's monday night and i just got back yesterday from philadelphia where i attended the first weekend of opera philadelphia and if you're listening to this on the day that it drops you still have a chance to catch all of the shows at week two of the festival i was going to go through it in chronological order of how i saw uh the performances my first night i arrived i got to see um the world premiere renee orth's 10 days in a madhouse Mm -hmm. you know it's gotten great reviews and um For me, the performances were outstanding, uh, especially Rand Bryce Davis, who has really the only thing that feels like an aria in the show. Okay. Um, And surprise performance by an artist who gets a lot of work at Tapestry Opera. Her name is Lauren Pearl. And Lauren Pearl, I don't want to spoil the surprise for those of you who are still going to see it next week. But uh, Lauren Pearl has mostly an acting role for most of the opera. And, um, then there's a surprise and it's <laughs> shocking. And it, when some, when that type of surprise happens and those of you who see it, um, you're like, it feels like magic when an artist can do two things cool. and do two things. Well, um, I know it's just two things. It's
1: like <laughs> people do all <laughs> sorts plenty. of things, but it's plenty, and, yeah, it's good and, directing.
2: And, yeah. Um, Kira Duffy, her voice is so beautiful and. It's such a dramatic part, and she manages to still have beautiful tone. Her big scene is the very end of the opera, and leading up to it, uh, she has to do lots of extended technique stuff, and you know, off the voice kind of sprechstimme type of things. And um, yeah, she manages to to keep her beautiful voice beautiful, and uh, yeah, the the show is interesting. Uh, I think Weston would really like it a lot. It's maybe not. <laughs> What's the that type supposed of, to mean, Oliver? <laughs> yeah. It's is the type of thing that I I want to hear again? Yeah, it was written after 1830, so Oliver's not interested. <laughs> I, I definitely was glad glad that I saw it because it was it was like a 90 minute roller coaster ride. Right? It was very engaging and very upsetting, um, and uh, that's what it, it's it's for. You know, like I think that this is the type of show that's meant to shock you and to make you think about something. And it did. It certainly did. So on that on that account, it was very successful. So I started my day two by attending the voice recital at Curtis Institute, featuring Amanda Majeski, our interview guest from last week, and pianist Milos Swapitsky. Um, Fantastic program, uh, very, uh, you know, female composer forward. And uh amanda is just such an outstanding performer and actress and uh she knew how to pace it and she gave a little speech at the end of the recital before she sang her final song saying you know i attended curtis all these years ago it brings back so many memories and i never had a chance to give my you know my final recital i guess she started getting work before she even finished and so this is like coming full circle and now i'm giving this recital and she talked about her never she was so like all these songs and to do, you know, it's not something that she does all the time now that she's a big opera singer. So it was really sweet. And it made her last song even more effective, which was Strauss's Zweignung. Mm -hmm. She sounded like gold. Uh, I was very happy to attend that. Uh, Then I saw Simone Bocanegra. Uh, Here we are talking about early Verdi again. (laughs) Um, Let me just say that Quinn Kelsey sounds like a million bucks. And um, he sang Falstaff at Santa Fe last year. And I think I said, he sounds like a million bucks. Like he has found something in his singing that makes singing Verdi seems like such a natural fit for him. Right? Yeah. And we haven't really had the conversation because we don't have enough baritones lovers on this program Mm -hmm. to talk about (laughs) what it means to be a Verdi baritone, but it's a thing. And there are so few of them out there and so many of them end up blowing out their voices and sounding woofy and hoarse and Quinn is somehow sounding more beautiful. <laughs> the more the more he gets into this repertoire, the more it fits him like a glove. This is a role that he was born to sing. Uh, Christian Van Horn, very noble uh, as Fiasco. Um, uh, Ana Maria Martinez, uh, singing gorgeously again, just as she did as Elvira in uh, Don Giovanni. She's outstanding. Uh, there's a tenor in the show. Uh, named Richard Trace Magour and uh, he's, uh, he's got it. He's like seven feet tall and uh, <laughs> he's, he's definitely has an instrument there. Um, I'll leave that there. I think the kind of the surprise of the uh, evening was the performance of Benjamin Taylor, uh, who in the role of Paolo, the villain um, and I, you mean know, all the other artists on the stage, except for Richard Trace Magour are like known quantities and uh, I, and it's a pretty big role, this Paolo role. Uh, to take a chance on a you know newcomer and a young ish artist mm-hmm. uh, was a risk, and he really delivered. So congratulations uh, for casting Ben Taylor. Now, Simon uh I've heard the opera before. I've listened to the recordings. Uh, there are some gorgeous moments, especially the duets. Uh, but do I know what I saw? No. And uh, at the intermission, I went to the reception. I talked to a bunch of people and nobody knew. It was, it was the topic of the intermission. What are we watching? Okay. Nobody knows how to... Like the, the plot <laughs> is so convoluted. And um, I will say that the stage direction did not help in telling the story. The beautiful set design, uh, there were... Uh, it was a very grand set. It looked very expensive. Lots of moving parts. Uh, there were these two... Nude male statues holding torches that I want for uh, light pictures in my house. Okay. <laughs> um, um, I'll just revert back to refer back to my uh, comment about early Verity
1: in the previous segment of the show. <laughs> yes. <laughs> this is the uh, anti-early Verity podcast yeah, just for Opera like, Box Score. And the
2: thing is that Opera Philadelphia is trying to, you know, market Simon Bocanegra as like the traditional core repertoire piece. Uh, that will make you fall in love with opera. I mean, they even did a whole bit where they uh, were standing outside of the academy and, you know, doing like a a Billy on the Streets type of quiz, quizzing passersby and offering them tickets to Simon Bocanegra, you know? Yeah. And I I hope that those people use those tickets and uh, stayed for the second act. You know, Uh, I closed out my weekend by seeing Unholy Wars with friend of the show, Mm. um, Karim Suleiman. It's his own concept for talking about middle east conflict with italian Seicento music of like caccini and monteverdi um a beautiful idea the band was gorgeous uh, other friend of the show um singing in that john taylor ward the bass baritone uh let me say that again the other artists in the cast were friend of the show bass baritone john taylor ward um soprano raha mirza dagan and dancer Coral Dolphin. Uh, There was some music that was used to stitch together the Baroque pieces composed by Mary uh, Cuyum Dijan. Dijan. I probably said her name wrong, I'm sorry. And it was directed by Kevin Newberry and it had projections and lots of of movement. And uh, it was mesmerizing. Everybody sounded gorgeous. The performances were gorgeous. I, you know, I love this music so much. And so I would be happy just to hear these artists perform this music. Uh, maybe I'm not the person that needs to see, uh, an, a story put on top of it. Um, but the audience loved it. I mean, everybody was mesmerized. I talked to people they're like, yeah, I, you know, I know we don't go for that type of thing, but it was so gorgeous. I couldn't take my eyes off of it, you know? So congratulations mm. to them. They, I think they, I think that's Cream's goal is to like, make this music mean something to people that don't really care about early music. So you're spending,
0: mm. you know, the whole block of time, you're seeing all these shows, which is great. The vibe, was it muted at all by, you know, the recent retirements, the budget cuts, etc. What was the let, energy like? Let me, like let, me the context let me get,
2: let me get at that one another way. And I just have to say before I, I, I get to that, there was one more event I went to on uh, Saturday night, which was super cool. It was a, a cabaret, uh, by the bear, uh, Bearded Ladies Cabaret, mm-hmm. uh, like a drag show. And they did a tribute to Jennifer Higdon mm. um, and her wife. Um, and uh, it was very queer. And uh, they did it in the style of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. And it was <laughs> super, super cool. And uh, that was one of the most, the fun, funnest things I've done. So I will say that I went to O-Festival in 2019 with Tobias Wright, uh, enemy of the show. And I had a great time. And I thought it was so. There were so many things to do, and it really felt like, um, you know, there was a, it was a feast. Uh, and they had the world premiere of Dennis and Katya, mm-hmm. and it was an Semele with Amanda Forsyth and Love for Three Oranges, um, and other things. Really, really awesome year. Then they had to skip uh, two years mm-hmm. thanks to COVID, and they mm-hmm. came back last year. And I think I came back a little bit sour on the old festival because I didn't none of the things that they were offering really my style of show. Maybe Weston would have had a good time there. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I didn't really feel like there was any piece that was like, oh, this was meant for me, you know. Um, so this year, I was a little bit skeptical, but I have to say, I really enjoyed myself. Uh, the overall feel, the, the integrity of the performances. Um, I thought it was great. My what I think is missing. And I said this to Frank, so he's not gonna be surprised when he hears this, is just a way to tie it all together And for there to be some uh, space maybe that between performances people could go and like visit the archives Mm -hmm. of Opera Philadelphia Mm -hmm. or like talk to a dramaturg or talk to one of the artists just like give us a couple more things if we're coming to Philadelphia to see these shows we need a little more community to make it feel like a festival.
0: Do you need like a chill out Uh, room or like a sensory room or something?
2: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Even just to look at, to look at, they actually make really beautiful print programs. They, all of their, their uh, collateral is gorgeous. And I think it'd be nice to have like a, a little archive of the collateral to just like browse through, you know, pictures of performances, Mm. et cetera. Um, The, the feeling, the feeling, the vibe. That's a that's a good question. I think that uh, we are very much in the inside track. We're, you know, we're too online mm-hmm. <laughs> as yeah. opera yeah. people. And I don't really think that general audiences. It's not a factor, I guess. No no yeah. or care. Yeah. you know?
0: Yeah. Mm. Festival Over 23, it's running through October 1st. If you've gone, if you're there, let us know what's happening. Send us that voice memo or email us your hot takes. Super simple mailbag at operaboxcore.com. You can even just go to the website, the page that says, You got something to say, and just record your thoughts there. Two minute drill right now. This
1: just in, the two-minute drill. All
0: right, listen up, here's everything you need to know about what happened in Operaland this week.
2: Samuel Schultz took to Facebook to call out The Met for its production, Dead Man Walking, starring Susan Graham. Said Schultz, this opera explores a nun's push to remove the death penalty for a convicted rapist murderer. In the story, the victims are killed after being raped and their voices are never, never given a chance to be heard. Cast as the mother of the rapist murderer is Susan Graham, a well-known opera star who
1: has victim-shamed me as she defends her friend, rapist David Daniels. Meanwhile, Peter Gelb has received Ukraine's Order of Merit. The award comes after the Met GM's public removal of Putin-supporting artists and helping to create the Ukrainian Freedom Orchestra. We assume firing Anna Netrebko had absolutely nothing to do with the decision-making process whatsoever.
0: In labor news, The Chicago Symphony Orchestra says it's agreed to a three-year contract with its musicians' union, and the Teatro Real's Chorus has come to an agreement with the House to call off a strike. But the Union for the Philadelphia Orchestra released a statement saying they're, quote, "...under protest." As they begin a North Carolina tour, the musicians noted that following a failed negotiation session last week, they would embark on the tour out of respect for their hosts in North Carolina.
2: OTSL has had a good run on Twitter, but we will no longer be active on Twitter X as of today. That is the last tweet you'll ever read from Opera Theater of St. Louis. The pinned tweet asks followers to sign up for their newsletter and hopes that you'll pursue them on other social media platforms and, of course, come to the gardens and the theater.
1: Financial Times critic Richard Fairman said that Rose Knox Peebles, who appears mostly nude as Erda in Barry Kosky's Das Rheingold at ROH, quote, has been made up to look a fright. The 82-year-old fired back, saying that she actually wore no makeup at all. Quote, the review was terribly short and superficial. My appearance was obviously totally irrelevant. I'm supposed to be 4.9 billion years old, so I would hardly look like some beautiful young thing.
0: In trade news, the Met Opera Chorus Master Donald Palumbo has announced that he's stepping down at the end of this season after 17 years on the job. Under his tenure, his singers were awarded Best Chorus at the 2021 International Opera Awards.
2: Exit stage right. Alejandro Merafel has died at the age of 54. The Argentinian baritone suffered a heart attack on stage while performing in the Oratorio Il Dona de la Vita Eterna with Capella Mediterranea at the Amber Day Festival last week. The performance, which was being broadcast live on television, was abruptly cut off, and about 800 audience members were immediately removed from their premises.
1: American held and tenor Stephen Gould has died at 61 weeks after announcing his terminal cancer diagnosis. Gould had had a stint in musical theater before becoming known for his signature heavyweight Wagner roles. In a social media post, the Bayreuth Festival paid tribute to Gould, saying, quote, Stephen Gould was one of the mainstays of the festival from 2004 to 2022. Highly esteemed by audiences, the press, and within the festival family, he was rightly dubbed the Wagner Marathon Man, and thrilled audiences with his distinctive voice and condition in countless performances.
0: Soprano Suzanne Sorocca has died at 96. First, a mezzo, having sung Carmen at La and Charlotte in Toulouse, she transitioned to soprano, singing roles like Aida, Tatiana in Eugene Onegin, and Elizabeth in Don Carlo, and went on to become one of France's most notable Tuscans
2: And on this day, September 25th, first performances include... Marco da Galliano and Jacobo Perry's Lo Sposalizio di Medoro e Angelica in Florence in 1619. Giovanni Battista Pergolesi's Adriana in Syria in Naples in Syria in Naples in 1734. Giri Antonin Benda's Romeo und Julie in Gotha in 1776. Michael Arna's The Maid of the Mill at Covent Garden in 1782. Adolphe Adam's Le Chalet in Paris in 1834. And in 1870, it was the first performance of the fourth and final version of Smetana's The Bartered Bride in Prague. And in 1984, it was the first performance of Luigi Nono's Prometeo in Venice. Birthdays include, well, a baptism at least, in 1683, French composer Jean-Philippe Rameau. 1899 saw the birth of English baritone Dennis Noble in Bristol. Dmitri Shostakovich was born this day in St. Petersburg in 1906. Conductor Sir Colin Davis, born in Surrey in 1927. And happy birthday to Slovakian tenor Peter Daborski born this day, September 25th in 1951.
0: And that is your two-minute trill.
2: Just a little bit of the late Stephen Gould singing the entrance of Floristan Gott berchtunkel from Beethoven's Fidelio. Rest in peace, Stephen Gould.
0: I looked at the pictures of the Kosky Rheingold, and I'm just, I wish I could be there. It looks so fabulous. I, it, it's one of these things in opera. I just, I love this art form so much, and I get so excited when I see these gorgeous productions, and i I can't be there. It's too far away, it's too expensive.
2: So for those of us, for those of you who didn't uh read this story, you can read it now. You can go to the link uh on the webpage uh on the website, Opera Box Score, and see a picture of um what's her name again? Rose Knox uh, Peebles. Rose Knox Peebles. And we <laughs> should clarify that Rose Knox Peebles uh is an actress slash model. So right. I'm not sure exactly who is voicing the role of Erda. Uh, But she is an 82 year old woman who.
0: That's a good point. It's
2: basically nude in this production, and she's apparently uh, on
1: stage the whole time too, which is no mean feat. Uh, And you know, uh, certainly the uh, the age of the actress in question is you know uh, important to the concept. Erda is not supposed to be a young woman; she is the uh, Earth goddess. She is as old as the earth, so it makes sense that she would be a, a little older. I do think this. (laughs) I think anytime you have a reviewer commenting overly on appearance, you run the risk of kind of being insulting. And that's what this reviewer did. And, you know, good for her. I think she took it with a reasonable sense of humor, you know, stood up for herself uh, and said like, Obviously, that's not the point, you know. So I, think that's great. You missed a trick, great. man.
0: Yeah, you missed a trick, man. I, this, these reviews, it's like, what, what are you, what are you focusing on? Like, were you, exactly, are we watching the same show? Are we being moved by the same thing? Because clearly, you have, you have missed something here.
2: So I guess the story that everybody, um, well, there's a lot of comments <laughs> right. on the original on the original post uh, from Opera Wire. Um, When they shared Samuel Schultz's Facebook um, with their, you know, sizable audience. Um, Shots fired, bombs thrown, man. uh, I don't, I mean, Ashley's not here and I maybe am not the person. Because I am the one that has to work with all of these people. <laughs> well,
0: so so, <laughs> I, and I, I let me ask this to you too, because because I true I you know I'm not in social media, I haven't really followed this apart from from the show, but it's like, what is Samuel Schultz's point in calling out the Met for Dead Man Walk?
1: Well, it's it's I mean, first of all, it's you know Susan Graham who has been a fairly vocal supporter of David Daniels uh, even before. Um, even before the now infamous, you know, liked, liked comments on David Daniels. Yeah, they're very returning. good friends.
2: They, they work together a lot. And apparently when the allegations before the trial, before mm-hmm. any of this, when the allegations came out came out years ago, Susan Graham staunchly defended David Daniels. Yeah. And I guess uh, sort of denounced Samuel Schultz. Yeah,
0: fine. So we get, I get the point. I get Schultz's point that like art is imitating life here, right? And that Susan Graham is playing this, the mother of the rapist murder which is in Dead Man Walking is he saying that the Met should not be doing this opera uh
2: he's saying that they should he's saying that Susan Graham should not be promoted in the show and maybe even you know taken out of the cast
0: so is he systematically gonna start to just pick away at everyone who has supported David Daniels I'm not agreeing so. <laughs> I'm not I'm not agreeing with with Daniel's conduct to make that super clear and I'm not I would not support him. But, like, we're starting to get into the sort of, like, friends of friends of friends territory here. Where do, where do you stop? I mean,
1: I I think that there's uh, there's a fair question in there somewhere. I, I do think that there is a certain irony in the, the content of the show. And I think uh, Schultz also makes the point in that same Facebook post. It's not just... Uh, dead man walking he makes the point that backstage there are signatures from placido domingo james levine uh people like this who have not been taken down and and there is the perception which actually also so let me let me
2: hold on Since so since since weston admitted that he's never been to the metropolitan opera <laughs> uh,
0: there are there are
2: these there are these galleries right of uh 8x10 headshots that like line these walls. I forget exactly what hall it is, but like, but you can see all of these, you know, shots of all of these, you know, luminaries of opera. And um, up until, I guess, recently, maybe even maybe up to this post, uh, it was easy to see pictures of, you know, Jimmy Levine and Pasta Domingo, etc. Uh, I think the Met has changed that. Uh, and now it's only mm. artists that are currently performing right okay um, interesting. and i don't know what that's a rea- there's probably a reaction to james james levine but uh, i'm not sure if samuel schultz has his facts right about pictures of uh david daniels and jimmy levine posted on the wall so i haven't been in a while so i have to go i can't tell you but yeah. hey if you're if you go to the ma- hey pj can tell us go over there and get <laughs> your, bring your camera take us a video of who's are actually uh,
0: Oliver, you rivers. should be spending less time in Philadelphia. More time at the Met. I don't know, man. <laughs> I'm going to
2: try to go. Yeah, but I mean, I see where you're going there, uh, George, about saying, you know, where do you draw the line? Um, I understand, actually. Uh, so Susan Graham, is, we just had an interview with her a couple of weeks right. ago when she yeah. was at Santa Fe. Yeah. Uh, I have nothing personal against Susan Graham, and I thought she gave a great interview. Um, but yeah, she seems to, to be still to this to this day, defending David Daniels, and that says more about her own. How did Ashley describe it? You know, um, uh, cognitive dis what it Cognitive disness. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. That she can't imagine that her friend did these things. She just can't imagine. Yeah. It, you know.
0: Yeah.
2: Uh, yeah. And that's that says a lot about her as a friend. Like she's a great friend. So <laughs> if you ever want to murder somebody, uh <laughs> become Susan Grant's best friend, she'll be your alibi.
0: Wow. <laughs> Jeez. Just before we wrap it up, you as I said that was, I, that was,
2: I went too far, but yeah,
0: you know what I mean. So um
2: yeah, it'll be interesting to see where where he goes with this because now he has it seems like he has some leverage now. Now that David Daniels pleaded or whatever he didn't plead guilty, he um he took a plea deal. You right. know? Uh it seems like Sanderswell's has some leverage to see who, you know, who he's gonna start lobbying bombs at. Um and I'll just say that our friend of the show, Michael Mays, says that Samuel Schultz is wrong that the opera, uh, Dead Men Walking, doesn't give voice to the victims. He says that's absolutely wrong. It does give voice to the victims. So,
0: Before we wrap it up, OTSL is off of Twitter, X, blah, blah, whatever. Uh, other opera companies now are also uh, leaving the platform as well. Uh does anyone care? Like, why Why would OTSL decide to do this?
1: Well, I mean, uh, honestly, it's all Elon Musk's fault, which is the general sort of slogan at, at Twitter for the past, you know, several months now. Um, I think a lot of opera companies are like, is this even worth this to pursue this? Um, mm-hmm. Do we just want people on platforms that aren't being abandoned? There's also, you know, persistent rumors that Elon Musk is going to start charging um, organization's money to be on Twitter, okay. which is probably not worth it to a company like Opera Theatre St. Louis. Um, I think that there is a... Uh, Twitter is feeling increasingly like uh, a social media of yesteryear Death. any all all the cool young opera companies are heading over to tiktok now so even i know um,
0: that and i'm not on social media
1: <laughs> so opera theater st louis i look forward to seeing you on my feed as soon as possible
2: i'll say that you know having worked in marketing and having had like boot camps of digital marketing and having just come from uh, a conference where we talked a lot about um you know, what platforms are where the next generation are. Uh, Twitter has always been in an in between spot. Mm-hmm. Facebook remains the number one platform for the generation of audiences that are going to the opera. Instagram is younger. Twitter fell somewhere between uh, Instagram and fell between, yeah, uh, Facebook and Instagram and TikTok. Is for the youngest generation. There's actually other platforms which we didn't even talk about, like Twitch, that are even for younger and Snapchat. Uh, but Twitter <laughs> has sure. always been in that weird place that was really for people who liked to, uh, you know, do this thing where they uh, subtweeted and kept conversations going about certain topics, uh, almost like a like Reddit or something like that. Yeah. Uh, but it never was really a place to for marketing. It was more of a place mm-hmm. for for conversation, mm-hmm. but not marketing. Uh, Facebook is remains the best place to uh, have a, like a comprehensive way of like marketing a show. And now, uh, yeah, a lot of those people I think are, are spilling off and moving into Instagram. So I don't think it's a big loss for any company to lose Twitter as a platform. Uh, I think that they need to start focusing on Instagram. Everybody needs to start focusing on how to use Instagram. It's uh, you know we're a very visual uh, species generation. Yeah, we're and Instagram is great for telling stories with images and with videos, uh, whereas Facebook has never really been great for that. Uh, and it, in order to compete with Instagram, it started turning um, text posts into images just so that people would look at them. You know, um, and yeah, as as far as like TikTok and Twitch and all those other things go, uh, it's ask somebody younger
1: tiktok is great it's it's honestly perfect for opera marketing i, <laughs> okay. I can i can oh only God. say good things about it yeah,
0: I, yeah. <laughs>
1: george george is still like sending letters by I mail. Ju- so. i just want to
0: write someone a postcard let's <laughs> wrap this show up
1: good call bad call on opera box score
0: good call bad call kicking it off with oliver camacho
2: before i went to the opera philadelphia festival i actually was uh participating in a radio a public radio conference drink and uh i got to uh, (laughs) i almost got to meet ira glass even though he ended up canceling he had a death in the family um wasn't philip uh, was it no he was giving a keynote he was gonna be giving a keynote uh final talk uh but he had to back out so i didn't get a chance to meet him but i did get to meet ezra klein my wonk boyfriend from way back um Ari Shapiro, who is like seven feet
0: tall. Ari Shapiro.
2: so handsome. Like, he's so handsome that it hurts a little bit. It's like, you, when you look at him, you feel like, ugh, I'm just, I, I'll never be as good looking That's as That's so funny. In-
0: Ari was a yeah. senior when I was a freshman at Yale. I always, when I think of Ari, I always think
2: <gasps> Drink that. again. Yeah. yeah. And he must've been tall even back then.
0: Well, I've always been short, Oliver, so yeah. it's kind of all relative. <laughs> oh, so speaking
2: of short, I met one of my heroes, Terry Gross, uh, Fresh Air. And I, you know, there was a long line of people that wanted to like have their picture taken with her. And I was at the front because I literally ran to be in the front of that line. And I think everybody was getting so annoyed with me because I was talking to her about opera and how when uh, <laughs> How you Dolora do an Zajic, opera
0: podcast and would she like to feature it? Yes. <laughs> when, when
2: Dolores Zajic uh, was her interview guest, how she kept co- uh, correcting... Terry Gross on how to say "un ballo en maschera," and she wouldn't let it go. Like it was really like a minute of Dolores Ajik correcting <laughs> Terry Gross. I was like, "Why don't you just just say a masked ball? <laughs>
1: that's it, you know." <laughs>
2: um, anyway, I did tell Terry Gross about uh, Opera Box Four. Did you really? I did, and so if we yes. get one extra, we get one extra count every episode. You know, at speed, <laughs> it's <that's>... Terry
1: Gross. <laughs>
0: Oliver. Hi, Terry. You are the absolute best. How I love you. That's so great. That has absolutely made my day. (laughs) Weston Williams.
1: Well, you know, it's finally officially fall. I think. I'm not entirely sure. I haven't looked at the calendar, but I think it's officially fall. And the reason I know it's fall is because, you know, I come from a place where uh, opera festivals during the summer are just not a thing. Mm. So I still have something very deep in my physiology like I can smell when opera season is starting again. And I had that moment this past week where I uh, like I I woke up and I walked outside and I was like, yeah, I'm seeing Flying Dutchman soon, right? And then I realized I had accidentally already gotten a ticket to see Night of the Living Dead uh, <laughs> uh at, at a movie theater. So, you know, that's what my life is like. And also, why is there no Night of the Living Dead opera? Well, exactly. That's my that's my bad call. There should be one. Do,
0: do you know who also had a great fall? Who? Humpty Dumpty. <laughs> That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio I can't believe
1: you're ending the show on that joke.
0: (laughs) Hey, make sure you subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Get your (laughs) voice heard. Find links to stuff we've talked about at the website operaboxscore.com. It's also where you can put your money where our mouths are. You give back to the OBS on the page that says support the team. Your announcer is Norm Waddell, your creative consultant is Oliver Camacho, and your audio editor is Weston Williams. I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera as you let it all hang out like Erida. We're back with an all-new show next week when Lisette Oropesa takes a free throw on Lucia, plus you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more early Verdi operas. (laughs) Join us.